This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good morning. You're listening to the morning run. It's just past 9:35 a.m. and you're listening to the SNM show. I'm Melissa Idris with Julian Ng, and the SNM show, of course, is the show where we rant about everything that's working in markets and everything that's not. Today, we're going to try and tackle a big topic. We're going to try and demystify the rules of a takeover, especially in light of the new rule book launched by Securities Commission on the revised takeover and mergers framework. And to help us tackle this massive topic, we have Brian Chia, partner at Wong and Partners. Good morning, Brian. Morning, Melissa. Thank you for having me. Fantastic to have you here. We are banking on your expertise to help us uh, demystify this topic. So let's start at the very basic, at the very beginning, where we, everyone should start. Uh, essentially, what a takeover offer is, mm. um, and exactly what is this takeover code that we are talking about today? Okay, well. A takeover offer is just a fancy legal term uh, to describe a situation when somebody takes over control of a company. Uh, The takeover code is simply a law that regulates takeovers, right? So when somebody undertakes a takeover, um, the code prescribes certain timing as to how the timing of the process should happen. It prescribes the announcements that need to happen. It prescribes the disclosure requirements um, and, and so on and so forth. Right? So it's just really a framework by which takeovers must uh, happen. Mm-hmm. So Brian, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, the reason why these rules need to exist is to protect certain shareholders. Mm. Is, that, is that right? And, and now the, the rule keeper is the Securities Commission. That's correct. I think the code and the rules are designed for several things. Right? It's designed to ensure that there's an information-efficient market. It's really to ensure there's maximum information out there. Uh, And it's also principally designed to ensure that shareholders are not prevented from being able to accept an offer when that offer is made. And also, of course, to ensure that there's a fair and transparent process, that there's optimum information out there, so that shareholders have all the information to make that decision. But also, Brian, I mean, it's not just about the shareholders, right? That the on the opposite side, the idea for a takeover code is to ensure that business can be done in an efficient manner. So takeovers can happen without, you know, bogging it down with bureaucracy and many layers of a process. That's correct. I think, and I think the Securities Commission, uh, you know, being the, the the regulatory body that looks after takeovers, is sensitive to this balancing act that they have to fulfil. Mm. Um, you know, it cannot stymie takeovers. You know, it has to facilitate takeovers. Uh, but one thing I think uh, I, I would like to point out is that, you know, the Securities Commission as the regulator, they are not concerned with the f- uh, financial or commercial uh, advantages or disadvantages of any offer. Right? They're right. not concerned with yeah. that. Right. That really is the decision for the shareholders, yourself mm. and myself. They're right? just interested in levelling the playing field. Absolutely. And They're interested in ensuring that when and if and when a takeover does happen, it happens in the right way. Yeah. I just want to briefly have a little history lesson, right? Going back into the days <laughs> of the, the dark ages <laughs> before, before these rules came about. Were there instances of uh, certain rights of certain shareholders being trampled upon? Well, you know, we've, we've had the takeovers code in Malaysia for some time, right? Uh, the current reiteration is the 2016 one, and that came into effect uh, 15th of August, mm-hmm. so about two to three weeks ago. 
Before that, we had the 2010 code, right? And before that, we had the 1998 code. If my memory serves me correctly, I don't think we had the takeovers code before 1998. Mm -hmm. And really, um, the rights uh, of shareholders and the way which takeovers could happen was regulated by the Malaysian Companies Act. Okay. So a little bit more prim primitive those days, um, you know, but uh, we've got the code now. So um, maybe um, you could take us through some of the points as to why certain rules exist. For example, one that we hear of very often is called, uh, known by its initials, um, the MGO or the Mandatory General Offer, uh, where upon crossing the 33% mark of acquiring a company, you have to make that general offer to the rest of the shareholders. Mm. Give us a little bit of background about why this rule exists. Okay. Well, there are, there are a couple of ways by which a takeover can happen, right? An MGO or a mandatory general offer is just one of the many ways by which a takeover can happen. And a mandatory offer simply means, uh, refers to a situation when the offeror or the bidder mm -hmm. uh, is forced to acquire all the shares which he does not already own. So he has to make an offer to all the shareholders out there. The law prescribes a threshold. Um, there are two limbs to that threshold, actually. There's that 33% uh, uh, mark that we referred to. So if you are from below 33, you acquire more than 33, then the law requires the bidder to make that MGO. Uh, the second limb is a situation where you are already between 33 and 50 and the buyer, uh, the bidder uh, crosses the 2% mark over a period of six months, commonly known as the creeper rule. Creeper rule. Mm -hmm. yeah. Okay, so th this means that uh, they already, already own uh, kind of a major substantial stake and they accumulate 2% of the company within a six-month time period. Correct. And in, sorry, yeah. Yeah, I, just, go for it. I just wanted to say, mm. and in either of those two situations, that's when an MGO is triggered because that is how the law deems control as having passed. Right. So the moment it's passed to a bidder or uh, offeror, then the offeror has to then make that offer available to all the other shareholders to be able to exit. So, so you decide. What is the principle behind this kind of ruling? The or logic, right? What the is the logic, logic or, or behind Or if it? these rules didn't exist, what would happen uh, to the rights of the other shareholders? It feels so arbitrary, the 33%. You know, yes. what, this could have been any number pulled yes. out from anywhere, right? Yes. I mean, the law has to prescribe a number. Right, it, it can be arbitrary. I mean, I think in Singapore and Hong Kong, it's thirty percent. If I'm not mistaken, I think Thailand is twenty-five percent. So wow. you know, and, and UK is also thirty percent. So you need a number, right? And it may be arbitrary, but you need a line in the sand beyond which the law uh, deems that control has passed, which means that. Uh, the law requires you to make that offer to all the other minority shareholders to be able to exit at the same price, since you now control it. Why is this important? It is important because uh, the, the idea is to give minorities the same rights uh, because there's now a new shareholder, there's a new man in town, he's a new controlling right, shareholder. And you may not like that, so you may want to exit. Absolutely. Okay. So, which is why the offer document and the law prescribes uh, lots of information to be made available, not just of the bidder himself or itself, but also its plans for the target and, and the prospects and so on. And then, you know, that offer is put to the minorities for the minorities to decide do you want to stay or do you want to accept the offer and go? And what is the price that the offer is being decided at? Okay, so for an MGO, it would be the highest price paid by the uh, bidder in the last six months before the offer was triggered. 
the new takeovers code has a slight kink to that. Mm. Uh, it really prescribes uh, for a situation where the bidder has uh, bought shares from somebody that it is acting in collusion with, right? And therefore trying to fly under the radar and saying that control has not passed. The 2016 court tries to plug that gap by saying that the offer price now needs to be uh, the 20, uh, the volume weighted average price 20 mm. days before the offer was triggered. So really what the SC is trying to prevent here is uh, to trying to pr- uh, introduce is some form of market reference price. Right? So let's say I've bought a bunch of shares from you, Melissa. Uh, that price has got no relevance to the price at which the shares are now trading. Right. Right? But we're actually acting in cahoots. Right? We, are, we are colluding. So this could be the, to the ostensible disadvantage of the minorities. Lah. So that is how the SC is trying to plug that gap by saying that, look, you have to have some form of ostensible reference price and it will require the offer to be made at that 20-day WeWAP uh, rule. Is that in line in, so to speak, best practices around the world? Mm. I use air quotes here, but you can't see it on radio. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I stand corrected, but I think that's a bit of a... That, that's a Malaysian... Uh, a Malaysian best provision. practice. Okay. <laughs> okay. And these parties in cahoots, I, I guess it's... I believe it's being... They're being called uh, parties acting in concert, right? Correct. Concerted P- parties. Correct. Or PAC. PACs. Okay. Yeah. How do you identify them? I mean, is it easy to identify such parties? I mean, um, I, I can work with somebody who can still remain under radar, can I not? Mm. After this, Jules, you and I, we can talk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if we had a line of credit lined up. <laughs> you, you are absolutely correct, Julian. Uh, at the end of the day, whether somebody is acting in concert with somebody else is going to be a question of fact, right? Because there's so many ways that you can uh, be acting in concert with that, that person. I can scratch your back after the offer has been taken, uh, has been completed. I can make you whole in some other, many other ways outside the scope of the offer. Um, the PAC really is broadly defined, right? Mm-hmm. PAC is defined to refer to anybody who cooperates through any form of agreement or arrangement, uh, cooperates to control the target company. So ultimately, it will be a question of fact. Yeah, I mean, I know that's the definition, but to just identify them would be quite hard. I guess one of the ways would be to uh, identify people with very meaningful stakes and to keep uh, keep a kind of surveillance on them. Is that mm. what is being done in practice? I think what happens, what, what the law tries to do is to introduce presumptions. So under the Code and the Capital Market Services Act, the CMSA, um, the law actually prescribes uh, uh, presumptions, legal presumptions as to when a bidder will be acting in concert mm. with somebody else. So uh, associated companies, for example, are more than 20% shareholding, mm-hmm. they are presumed to be acting in concert. And the effect of that is that the onus is reversed. The, the offeror or the bidder has to disprove that those other people, those people, uh, are not being acted in. They're not acting in concert mm-hmm. together. Yeah. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. More with the SNM show coming up in just a few minutes on BFM eighty nine point nine. Good morning. You're listening to the SNM show. I'm Melissa. I've got Julian here with me, and we're trying to demystify the Securities Commission's latest updates to takeover rules to help us do this. Brian Chia, partner at Wong and Partners, joins us on the show today. Now. Brian, the SC said that they wanted to to revise the takeover and mergers uh, framework to help facilitate the market in what they say is now a more sophisticated environment, but at the same time to make sure that there aren't loopholes um, 
for shareholders to be taken advantage of, minority shareholders to be taken advantage of. So how exactly does the new code, which just just came into uh, force about less than a month ago, if I'm not mistaken, how does that provide more uh, shareholder protection for the minority shareholders? Okay. Well, I think maybe the first thing to notice that um, the 2016 code is an evolution. Right, So it has improved upon the 2010 code, uh, referring to best practices from Hong Kong, Singapore, the common law jurisdictions. So there are a couple of ways, I think, uh, a couple of observations that you can make as to how the 2016 code has now uh, been improved upon. Uh, the first thing is uh, increased disclosure. Right, uh, There's increased disclosure or enhanced disclosure requirements uh, now under the code. So for example, the offeror or the bidder has to provide... Um, uh, disclosure on any material changes to its financial position. It has to provide uh, information on any significant accounting policies of itself. It would also have to provide uh, any material changes to the financial position of the offeree, the target company. So you can see that you know the, the law tries to introduce these sort of uh, enhanced disclosure requirements so that uh, the shareholders, mm. you know, the mum and dads out there, have got optimum information to be able to make an informed decision. Right. And all this has to do with uh, the valuation of the company, right? A, a quiet company, so that people out there can know uh, what exactly is the true value of the company. Is that what this is for? It is value. It is value, uh, but also in terms of prospects. Right. So from a, share, from a mum and dad shareholder perspective, I have full information. What, what are your plans? Right. Uh, you know, are, are you somebody that's worth sticking around for as, as the bidder, as the main shareholder? Uh, do, do I, am I aligned in your vision of how you will be managing the company? Or should I just take your offer and take the cash and exit? And do the uh, independent advisors feature prominently in this kind of valuation decisions of financial positions? They absolutely do. Uh, under the takeovers code, as before, the independent advisors have a main role. Uh, under the code, uh, they are required uh, to uh, opine uh, on whether the offer is fair and reasonable. And it takes the form of a document called the Independent Advice Circular the IAC, okay. uh, and that is distributed to all shareholders and all mum and dads should be reading that <laughs> technically <laughs> to decide whether the daughters and sons. <laughs> some, sometimes the words are very confusing, like a fair and reasonable is something that you mentioned, uh, but there is also fair but not reasonable and is there unfair yeah. and reasonable? Reasonable but unfair. Yeah. yeah, something like that. Yeah, I get it. I mean, I think, I mean, without getting into the intricacies of all these terms, you know, I think uh, at the end of the day, it's, it's really about a feel, right? I mean, the independent advisor can advise all they want. At the end of the day, it's got to be aligned with your investment time horizons and your entry price and, you know, what, what you see from the information. Uh, I think uh, independent advisors can only say so much, lah. <laughs> well, you, you mentioned also that the code has been revamped in a way to be in line with you know, common law jurisdictions, like you said, uh, Singapore, uh, the UK, Hong Kong. Has the SC's new code, does it provide for the best mm. practices that we see in all these different regions? Is it in line with best international practices? Not, well, 
I guess I guess best international practices is a bit of a pejorative term. <laughs> uh, it may be practices uh, practiced by other jurisdictions. Not necessarily the best. Not necessarily the best or appropriate for Malaysia. Okay. Uh, so the court has tried to plug certain holes and tried to contemporarize mm-hmm. certain situations. Uh, convertible securities, for example. Uh, that, you know, there's a squeeze out uh, t- uh, provision, mm-hmm. right? The squeeze out provision simply refers to a situation where the bidder or the buyer uh, manages to get beyond a certain threshold of 90%, after which uh, it uh, can then require, force the minorities, the dissenting balance of 10% or so, to, uh, out of the, of the company. Right, because it's majority rules. Right, mm-hmm. I own ninety percent of the company. I should be able to squeeze you out. Right. Previously, under the old code, there was no provision to take into account convertible securities. Ah, okay. The squeeze-out provision was only for ordinary shares. For shares. Yes. So, um, somebody can sneak up on the shareholders and remain under the radar by buying up and accumulating things like warrants and uh, options and yeah. things like that. And Te- Technically, yes, Julian, but that would be a bit of a dangerous game to play. <laughs> la. Because if you reach 90% already, if let's say the offer has reached 90%, the offer is successful. Right, then later, uh, and the offer squeezes the the minorities out, and then you start converting right from your warrants or your option or your options, for example, converting into ordinary shares. But at that point in time, you'd be you know a shareholder of ostensibly a private limited company right. because it may already have been privatized. But what about options um, under the situation of uh, MGO? Um, I'm under the radar as far as ordinary shares are concerned mm. of under 30% shareholding, but my options after conversion would exceed that 33% threshold. How does the rules okay. treat this kind of thing? Okay, I think you've, you've, hit, uh, spot on the na- you've hit the nail on the head yeah. as to one other area which the 2016 court tries to uh, uh, plug, uh, and that is in respect of options and derivatives. This goes back to your point earlier, Melissa, as to whether or not it is, it is best international practice, right? So if you look into the Singapore Code, the Hong Kong Code, the London Code, they all have very uh, developed provisions as to when a mandatory offer obligation may be triggered uh, because of an acquisition of long options and derivatives, right? Where the holder will benefit economically if the underlying price of the securities increase. Mm-hmm. Our code, or rather the 2016 code, tries to plug that, but it has remained silent in respect of the details. So basically, the code says, if you think you uh, trigger the code as a result of your exposure to these uh, options and derivatives, please come and consult with us. It has deliberately avoided all the other meat around the other regimes, uh, which talk about safe harbours and so on and so forth. So this so is a, like like a case by case basis. Come and check with the SE. Thing, is, it? Is, it? is that is that intentional? I mean, is that was there a reason why they made that kind of vague? Mm. I can only speculate. Uh, you know, uh, not in policy making, but I can only speculate that uh, you know these options and derivatives are still relatively unknown or unused. Relatively. Right to the if you look at it from the perspective of the the broader investment community, uh, the banks, the securities houses, the GLCs. I'm sure they'd be across all these uh, you know instruments. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking at the mum and dad's mm-hmm. type of shareholders out there, I guess they don't really understand it. And therefore, what the SC is saying, uh, you know, we'll take it on a case by case basis, and we'll see how this area develops. Can we spend uh, just a few minutes talking about schemes of arrangements? Because I think uh, this came up in the latest code. 
what is all this about? Okay. A scheme of arrangement basically is a, it's a, it's different from an offer, right? And in an offer situation, which we talked about earlier, like an MGO, it's a situation when the bidder, right, the offeror, makes an offer to the, rem- the shareholders to buy their shares. A scheme is slightly different because it's a situation where the company, the, the target company, cooperates with the bidder to put a scheme, i.e. some corporate uh, proposal, to the shareholders. And the shareholders are then in turn asked to a vote to decide on the merits of that scheme. Of course, in the context of a takeover, a scheme is always designed to, at the end of the day, uh, secure control for the bidder. Right. right. So I'll give you an example, which is commonly used in Malaysia. It's a selective capital reduction. Right? So basically, uh, you and I are shareholders, uh, a bidder comes along and uh, undertakes a scheme with the company, the proposal is put to the shareholders, uh, the effect of that proposal is that all the shares are cancelled, except the shares held by the bidder. Right. So he becomes the sole remaining shareholder and therefore in con- put in control of the company. So... To your question again, I think that the, the big change in the 2016 code is that the 50% rule um, has been abolished. Now, what do I mean by this? This means that um, you, don't need to be more, you don't need to be a shareholder of more than 50% before you can avail yourself of a scheme of arrangement. Uh, that was the case mm. in the 2010 code. And what is the benefit of this uh, to open up uh, the SOAs to so-called minority shareholders. Yeah, I, I think the effect of the abolishment of this 50% rule is that uh, offerors or bidders uh, can now use a scheme of arrangement that's now... Uh, because the 50% rule was a big deterrence. I needed to have more than 50% previously before I could use a scheme to take control right. of a company. Now I don't need to have a 50% mm-hmm. shareholding. I could have, I could have be zero. Right. Presumably, but, that's beneficial to uh, the other minority shareholders. Not necessarily. I guess a lot of it depends on how you see it. Uh, I think from a bidder's perspective, uh, it certainly opens up the uh, uh, ability of to take over a company. But from the minority shareholder perspective, uh, there are still protection mechanisms. So, for example, under the old code, as it is under the new code, uh, 75% of the shareholders still need to approve it. And this is 75% of non-interested shareholders. Mm. Mm-hmm. So you have to exclude the shares held by the bidder because right. he would be interested, clearly. Uh, not more than 10% uh, must be objecting, right? And you also need majority in numbers, right? So there are all these uh, sort of safeguards already in place previously and they continue to apply. Uh, and it's a pretty high threshold, you know, um, to get 75% of non-interested shareholders. Mm. Uh, so I believe the checks and balances are still there. So I guess a lot of it to your question, Julian, is uh, how you actually see it. Unfortunately, we've run out of time. We have to say a big thank you to Brian, Brian Chia, partner at Wong & Partners, for coming on the show today to help us better understand exactly the rules of a takeover. Uh, this is in light of the new rule book launched by mm. the Securities Commission. Brian, thank you so much for coming on, on um, the SNM show. It's been a pleasure and thank you for having me. I'm Melissa Idris with Julian Ng for The Morning Run on BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.